All right. Well, we give you two pages of outline for those that are getting the email. You have uh, two pages there, not the normal amount that we uh, that we send you. No pictures for this one. We're just going to be uh, reviewing some things. All of everything that's in the outline and all the stuff that I cut out of yours and is in mine is in the original ones. I didn't have anything different from what was in the original ones. Unless it wasn't in the original ones, then you may not see that one. But um, probably if that was the case, I had you write it in there or something of that nature. But I uh, can't really do the whole big picture of Ezekiel here. I was hoping to get through most of it. And just looking through it, we would really be spending our time on the first half. Because we're, we're looking at spending on the, the chapters that dealt with Israel. Uh, the chapters that come after after that really deal individually with each of the nations that were surrounding Israel. And the final section of Ezekiel is on the future part with the temple and all that. And since that's all pretty recent, there's really no reason to include that in the review. But some of these things, it was a year ago that we went over them. So it's pretty easy to, to forget it. But this way you can see it as a whole picture because God sees it as a whole picture and not just the individual chapters. So we started off taking a look at Ezekiel, the man and the ministry. He was the priest and he was the son of Buzai, it says. His uh, father was probably of the line of Zadok. And I gave you some references for that that you can go and look up. And those references are Ezekiel, if I don't uh, make note of it. It is Ezekiel that is there. Sometimes just for space, I had to cut that out. And this had taken place. Uh, the line of Zadok had, of course, replaced the house of Abiathar. And we just have been going over some of that in our Sunday services. But there's a reference there for you on that as well. So as far as prestige, Ezekiel had a lot more prestige in society than did one like Jeremiah. And that is probably why Ezekiel is taken in the, uh, in the captivity and Jeremiah is left behind. Jeremiah is considered to be a lower class person, uh, does not have the, uh, the kind of lineage that Ezekiel had. And so they left Jeremiah behind. Not saying that God viewed them that way, just saying that's how the Babylonians seemed to review it because they left behind the poor of the land and the lower class people of the land, it says in the word, and it took the ones they considered to be more beneficial for society. They took them with them. But he was to be God's spokesman and a watchman to the exiles. Jeremiah, of course, he was a spokesman to those that were still in the land. In chapter 3 and verse 10, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears, and go get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Down in verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So he is the watchman. He is to give them warning. And later on, he's going to spend some time talking more about the ministry of the watchman but this is what he is called to his ministry spanned from the fifth year of Jehoiachin's exile that was around 592 BC to the 27th year uh, of the exile and that would be around 570 BC we see that in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2 and 29 17 now Ezekiel has a tough message 
It was made more difficult because he had a great love for God's people. We spent some time talking about that. Delivering a tough message is not easy because of your call. It's not made easy because of your call. Just because you have a call to deliver tough messages doesn't make it easy. Now, it can be easy. Jonah was one for which he had an easy time delivering a tough message because he didn't like the people he was delivering the message to. If you don't like the people you are delivering the message to, delivering a hard message is not hard. In fact, you can get some enjoyment out of it, which Jonah seemed to do. But Ezekiel is not a Jonah. And he has a great love for the people of God. He has a great love for the city of Jerusalem, for the temple. He, being a priest, was uh, involved in the service of the temple. And he has great affection for these things. And so to bring these hard messages about the place and the people was very difficult for him. So understand this, that liking the people that you are to speak to is not a requirement but speaking the truth to them is and speaking the truth in love I had uh, mentioned this to you before opposition to your enemies is difficult but even more so to oppose your friends I think we kind of expect it from enemies his message was one of warning to a people who rebelled against God and who yielded to the ungodly environment around them and there was quite an ungodly environment all around him. In chapter 2, in verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Then he said to me, Son of man, this is in chapter 3, verse 4 through 7, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. In other words, you know how to speak to them. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. <laughs> so people who didn't understand your language and you don't understand their language would have listened to you better than people who understand you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me for all the house of Israel are hard-hearted and impotent. The atmosphere of rejection is something that he was dealing with here. In Judah, Jeremiah was prophesying about a long captivity and a return to Jerusalem. And, and uh, the people didn't like this message and other prophets arose with a more acceptable message. Now, Hananiah in Jeremiah 28 was one who spoke of a return in two years and restored temple worship. He broke the wooden yoke on Jeremiah and then gave, and God gave him a word about it being replaced with the yoke of iron. So in Judah, Jeremiah had trouble with other false prophets being raised up who were speaking words contrary to his. And in the same way, Ezekiel had people who were raised up to speak the same contrary words that were spoken against Jeremiah's prophecies. So you can kind of tell their sources similar, even though their location is different here. Now, Jeremiah was telling people to surrender to the Babylonians. Some prophets of those exiled were telling people to rebel. You'll see that. In a, we, we did spend time reading these, these scriptures. You can just go back and check them out later on if you want to. Jeremiah 29, 15 through 32 is uh, where you can read about that. So Jeremiah is saying, surrender. And the other prophets saying, no, rebel. And it just seems 
very often we are caught between two opinions. One opinion says do this, the other opinion says to do that. Now hindsight makes it easy to determine which prophets were speaking the word of God. But they did not have much hindsight in that day and had to determine who was speaking the truth. The same way that we had to determine who's speaking the truth because there are still people who stand up and prophesy certain things about things that will happen. And we don't have the benefit of hindsight. We can look at Ezekiel's words and say, oh, I can see how God was in this. But that's because we have hindsight. We're looking backwards on all the things that are going on. Now, many just rejected all prophetic messages, including those from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They had to defend their prophetic authority and the need to listen to them. So this is uh, an attitude that happened then. We've seen it happen throughout history, and we certainly have seen it happen now. But sometimes once people get contrary messages, I got one person telling me to do this, another person telling me that I should do that. So I'm just going to throw them all out. And that accomplishes the purposes of the kingdom of darkness. Because his purpose is to get you to not listen to the words of God. doesn't really care what words you do listen to, just so you don't listen to God's words. And if he can flood the market with enough words that you get tired of trying to discern all the words and you throw them all out, he has accomplished his purpose. And he's done that with many of the people in the nation of Judah and those who were in exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel not only had to hear the words from God, and preached them with boldness to a people who didn't want to hear them. But they also had to defend their prophetic authority compared to those other ones that were around claiming to be a prophet and that there was a need to listen to them. That's an awful lot to try and do. And you can see where Jeremiah and Ezekiel could both get discouraged at having to do all these different things. Now, for Ezekiel, he had to come against the thinking that outside of Jerusalem, true prophecy did not exist. We may not be able to relate to that, but they very much did. People of uh, Judea believed that anything that happened outside of Jerusalem was not God because the presence of God was in Jerusalem. And so, therefore, if it was going to be of God, the people, the prophets, the ministers had to come from Jerusalem or somehow have been tied to it in order to be uh, to have value now there are debates over the importance of Jerusalem and it as the source of all that is God continued and then when the fall of Jerusalem occurred you can imagine what kind of effect that had on the people if you held Jerusalem in that high regard that anything that was of God came out of Jerusalem and then Jerusalem falls what does that do for you make you think like there's nothing left in this world that is of God. Now a fundamental tenet of Judaism was the belief that God had elected David and his descendants to be the eternal rulers of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the city of Jerusalem as a divine dwelling place forever. When Jerusalem ceased being the divine dwelling place And when the line of David's was interrupted, everything they believed came crumbling down. It was shaken. So when the city fell, the temple was destroyed. It seemed to them that the covenant was broken. David's line was no longer on the throne. 
the temple was destroyed, did this mean that God was not as great as they thought? And does it mean that Babylon was greater? These are things they're going through because of the beliefs that they had. Now, the belief they had was not one founded in God. God never said to them, only out of Jerusalem will the things of God come. In fact, if they had studied the word of God, they would have seen that Abraham had nothing to do with Jerusalem and God ministered to him. And there were many before him in which God ministered to them and spoke to them and Jerusalem was not involved. Jerusalem was not a city that God had participated with. And that didn't occur until after the time of David. Now, you might be able to make a case for Melchizedek that he came out of Salem and that uh, there may have been some God-fearing things going on then, but certainly Jerusalem had fallen into a uh, state of idolatry and the pagans had the city for the longest time and David finally got fed up with them being in his borders and went over there and ridded them, got them out of the city. But up until then, God dealt just fine with the world through whatever city and wherever people were. But they got this in their head, and this is why the devil loves false things to get in your head. And this was established in them for hundreds of years, so that when it stopped, the devil could uproot any other, any other belief, any other doctrine that was there, simply because their foundation was wrong. So we have to make sure that what's in our beliefs are in the Word of God and not something that is just tradition that has brought this about. Now, Ezekiel's message was simple. We gave this to you before. Give it to you again. God is holy. Israel is sinful. God will judge. Israel must repent. And God will restore. We saw that certainly with the dry bones live again, the new Jerusalem that was coming, the new, uh, the new temple. All those things show the restoration that was coming. But that's really his message. Despite the sinfulness of Israel, God is still a holy God. Despite the judgment that God would bring, it does not negate the promises that God has made. Now, the simple outline of the book of Ezekiel was that chapters 1 through 3 deal with Ezekiel's call. 4 through 24 deal with Jerusalem's, that Jerusalem will fall. That's where we're going to spend most of our time in the review here, is uh, chapters 1 through 24, which is about half the book. 25 through 32 are remarkable prophecies, and I thoroughly enjoyed our time going through them, and there were some things that we were to learn in their application. But we dealt with each nation. Sometimes we dealt with a nation one, two, three chapters before we went on to, to the next one. But it was just to show God says it's not just Jerusalem that's going to fall. These other nations are in sin and they're going to fall too. I'm judging them. It's not just Jerusalem. And then in chapter 33, we have that one chapter kind of sandwiched there in the midst of all this this stuff and that is the watchman in the city and some great things come out of that chapter 34 through 48 are dealing with the restoration of Jerusalem and that we're not going to spend much time in that at all as far as our review is concerned again we just were in all that fairly recently just these other ones were, were a long time and I don't know that we would be here on earth before the Lord comes for us to ever get back into Ezekiel 
this is probably our last time going through these unless we just you know take a, a little detour here or there and and uh, move into it because it is a fantastic book but I wrote down some of the applications that we had put in uh, the other outlines just uh, carry some didn't, didn't bring all of them over but carried over some of them and here is one just as in, as in Ezekiel's day we must make a distinction between what is a true word from God and what is fake without the benefit of hindsight so we can certainly understand what they were going through and use this book as an opportunity for us to be able to discern be, between that um, I made a note when we got into this one that one of the reasons over the years I don't just condemn what leaders do or the attitudes that we face I'd prefer to show you just the word uh, the, and the pattern of the enemy that in the word of God we go through and we look at the pattern of the enemy and then when we see that pattern is when we can um, uh, we can spotlight the, the enemy because the enemy always has ways that he goes about doing things always has ways and if if I understand his ways that when he does them again I see them and so one of the things that, and I don't know which ones we got into in, in that particular um, episode, um, but one of the things we can, we can look at in, in history is one of the tactics of the devil is he destroys the, 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 the messenger, not the message. He realizes he does not have the opportunity to destroy the message, so he destroys the messenger. That is something that he continues to do. We saw it in the Word of God. We saw that Ahab had done that because he wanted the vineyard to make a vegetable garden out of it. And you remember his wife got all these scoundrels and they uh, took apart the character of the owner of the vineyard. We saw um, uh, in the New Testament that false witnesses were brought in to testify against Jesus. But there was an agreement there. We saw with Stephen they brought in false witnesses against him, but there was an agreement there. Then when Stephen utters the words that he was looking up in the heaven, because he had the heavens open, they said, we don't need any more witnesses. We have his own testimony uh, that he's looking up in the heaven, and they saw that as sacrilege, even though it was happening, even though it occurred with Stephen. They, they still did that. And you'll see this in other times, just a couple of instances, where the tactics of the devil are to destroy the person. Jesus' tactics were to expose the message. He tried to expose, he worked towards exposing the message of the Pharisees, never attacking their character. He could have, because their character was terrible. But he doesn't attack their character, he attacks the message. He exposes the darkness of their message to the light of the gospel. I think one of the best examples of that was when they brought the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now this is this he could have tore apart their character and there would have been witnesses there that said these guys were involved. We could have just had a field day and he could have tore apart their character. He never did it. He brought the light onto the thing that they were doing, and one by one they began to leave. And he turned to the woman and he says, Where are your accusers? They've gone. I neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. But see, that's the difference between the tactics. If you learn the characteristics of the kingdoms then when it shows up it, it's not hard deciding between an Ezekiel and one of the false prophets that he faced it's not hard to figure that out 
when you go through the book of Jeremiah, when you go through especially the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah gives us more of the interaction between him and the false prophets that were around. Ezekiel doesn't give us too much of that interaction. We hear a few of the words, but we don't have a whole lot of interaction. But Jeremiah, we have the interaction. And we saw how they came against him personally. They could not come against his message. In fact, how many times do you see prophets in the Old Testament who take their message and stand it up? Uh, Micaiah, if you return, I am not a prophet of God. And they were going to go lock him up. He said, let my message stand up. If you return, my message is false and I am not a prophet of God. But he, of course, he, the king didn't return. Jehoshaphat did, but uh, he didn't return. The king of Israel did not return. And so the, the kingdom of light will always put the message out. The kingdom of darkness will always attack the messenger. This is what will we'll go on. This is why I despise, one of, the, one of the many reasons, I despise the media. Because they don't attack the message of people they don't agree with. They attack the person. They try and throw false accusations, get enough false accusations. When I see it, I know who's behind it. Because God has never been about defacing the character of a person. He's about exposing the message. If you look at Paul, the way that he went against the people who were false teachers in his day, he came after the message. He came after the message of Hymaeus. He didn't come after them. He came after their message and what they were doing with that message. Not after them as a, uh, in character. And this is where you, you'll see the kingdom of, of darkness. I know every time I see people come after the person, it is always the kingdom of darkness in the word and in our lives, it's always the kingdom of darkness behind it. That's, that's how it goes. I can't read the word without seeing this. But God will expose the message. He takes the message that they have and brings it to light. And so these false prophets that were around Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day, their message was exposed. They were seen to be false teachers. And still, even after they were exposed to be false prophets, when they came and they prophesied something else, what did people do? What? When Jeremiah said, we are not supposed to go to Egypt. We are to stay here after they had the, the uh, uh, Gedaliah was killed. Remember, the people all wanted to flee to Egypt for safety because they were afraid Babylon was going to come in and wipe them. The, the few that remained, they were going to wipe us out. And Jeremiah says, no, don't go. God says, stay here. Remember that one where they came to him and says, go to God, find out what we should do. And whatever he tells you, we will do it. So he went away. I think, what was it? Seven days, ten days. He came back to them. And he gave them the message, and they rejected it as soon as they heard it. He said, I knew you weren't truthful in that. <laughs> they, they had other prophets, and these are probably some of the same prophets that came against Jeremiah's word before, and they went with them. It is amazing to me how they will do this. And, um, you know, just you look at our, our time, the people in the Senate, the people in the, well, mostly in the Senate for, for this particular one, I saw how they came after the character of people who were nominated for judges. They didn't come after who they were. It was supposed to be exposed. Let's, let's find out what they believe. That's what it's supposed to be, judicial hearings. And understand this too. Judicial hearings are not in the Constitution. Go back and read the Constitution. It's not there. 
they they're uh, they are a tradition that started. I don't even know when they started. It may have been started a long time ago, but it's not in the Constitution. There is no reason to hold judicial hearings unless they decide to. If they decide the people in power. They decide to hold them. They can. But if they don't do it, it's not going against the Constitution. Sometimes people misunderstand that. But I've seen how they they took apart the character of people. Didn't just. You know, what do you believe on this? What do you believe on this? What do you believe on this? That's what it's supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Let's find out where they stand on certain issues that we feel are pertinent for today. And do we feel, do we have enough people who agree with that who want to, uh, uh, you know, formally um, send them over? So that's that's what it's supposed to be for. But how many times have these, these judicial hearings, we're dredging up people, witnesses that can't be collaborated from 20, 30, 40 years ago? about stuff that, well, I don't know how this happened, I don't know, and just so much I don't know. It's just about defaming the character of the people. I know there was, I, my memory's kind of sketchy on this, but I think it was Judge Alito that when they went through the, the process with him, it was so traumatic for his wife, the character defaming that they were doing, I believe she miscarried. I believe that happened to her. I think that was the one that it happened to her. I know one of them, one of the judges, his wife, the wife miscarried, because of the trauma of what was going on with that. But this is the kingdom of darkness. I know it's the kingdom of darkness, and I don't care who gets involved with it. I don't care if it's somebody that I like. And there have been ministers, I know I've liked them, and they get into defaming someone's character. I said, well, that's not right, because that's not God. God exposes a message. If a person is in sin, how does God say he's supposed to deal with it? He's real clear about it. Go to them in private. God's not about embarrassing people. He's about restoring them. And so go to them in private. And if they don't listen, then take a couple more people and go to them and talk to them. If they don't listen, then it gives you the steps to, to be able to do that. But it's never embarrassed them, drag them out in public, throw all this stuff out there. That's never the way of God. It is the way of Satan. It's what he does. He is the accuser of the brethren. He passes that off to people. And I've seen ministers of the gospel pick it up. And they begin to go out there and they begin to accuse different ministers of this, 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 and this. I remember the words of Brother Hagin to us when we were in class. That's one of those days I remember being in the class. I remember where I sat in the class. And I remember him talking about, and he shared a story. And I'm not going to share the story with you now, but he shared a story at the time. And here's how he ended it. He said, men of God, men, men and women of God, I think is how he's going, will rise and fall. But you have nothing to do with their fall. And I try and make sure I keep keep on that. If they're gonna, it's up to God to bring them down. It's kind of like David's idea. David said, Saul, if he's missing it, it's up to God to take care of him. It's not for me to tear him down. It's not for me to kill him. It's up to God. He's God's man. God put him in there. God can take care of it, and God did. But David knew it's not my place. Now, how many people in the Old Testament can you? think of who decided it was my place especially in the northern kingdom of Israel where they decided I don't like you I don't like what you're doing I'm going to kill you and they take their their spot God's not in that God's about exposing the message of people but here the message of those who came against Jeremiah was exposed the message of those who came against Ezekiel was exposed and still after the exposure the people still went after the false message 
we're not going to get that, that far today, but Ezekiel eventually gets to the point where Jer- Jerusalem falls just like he said it would and the opposite of what other people said. And after that, guess what? They're still ready to listen to the false to the people who were false. And that's not just true for their day. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in Paul's day. And it's true in our day. <laughs> it's going to be true in any other day that comes after this day. That's just how people are. Well, we're on that for way too long. But it's important to know. Now, the, the historical background is important to understand. And I really just gave you the names of the players. If you go back to your original outlines, everything is there that I pulled out. If you, I, I believe it is. There may have been more detail in mine than, than yours because you know, it just depends on how much space we have. But... Um, if I'm reading anything and you want any of this stuff, you just let me know. Like I said, I've got, um, well, I told you folks who were here earlier how many pages. I'm not going to scare anybody outside <laughs> of that. But if you want them, you just let me know. Um, King Hezekiah died in 687 B.C. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon in 587 B.C. That is 100 years of history. Now, you're going to see many of a change that comes over this nation in a hundred years. But it's not just this nation. We can certainly see in our nation, just from the 50s, how many changes have gone on in this country. How many things are now normal that were appalling in the 50s. The commercials that you saw on TV in the 50s compared to the commercials you see today they would be appalled. The movies, the language, so many things. But here in a hundred years, we're just going to go over what happened with them that brought this reversal of, of uh, uh, the affairs of, of Israel or under, of Judah under Hezekiah. They were doing pretty well. Not as well as they were under David, but they were doing pretty well. Now, um, prior to 687 B.C., this was Shalmaneser, uh, the king of uh, Assyria. He invaded Israel in 722 B.C. when Hosea had refused to pay him tribute. The ten northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria, and they were gone. That was around 722 B.C. The southern kingdom was spared through the influence of uh, righteous men like Isaiah. And Judah experienced a spiritual revival under King Hezekiah, who was influenced both by what happened to Israel and by the preaching of Isaiah. Those are two things that impacted him in the way that he went taking the nation. He decided he was in more fear of the nation falling to uh, something like what Israel did, more so than the, the people. And the preaching of Isaiah helped encourage him as well. But all was not well. There was a strong party in Jerusalem that advocated an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. That was their goal. So Isaiah rejected this plan just as he had rejected Ahaz's plan to make an alliance with Assyria. And Isaiah's advice was to trust in the Lord. Now meanwhile, the Assyrians had a mutiny and Shalmaneser was gone and in his place was Sargon, which is translated legitimate king. So what's that tell you about him? 
if you have to have a name, legitimate king, I'm the legitimate king, that probably tells you that you were probably not the legitimate king. <laughs> but when Sargon defeated Egypt at the Battle of Raphia, Isaiah's advice to Judah was shown to have been correct. So if they would have allied themselves with Egypt, they would have gone down as well. When Hezekiah died in 686, those who sought closer ties with Assyria and its gods came into power. This is their, this is where they're going. Do we go the way of siding with Egypt? Do we go the way of siding with Assyria? Who's going to be the next power? We want to be on their side. Manasseh comes to the throne. Now Manasseh was Hezekiah's son, became king in 686 when Hezekiah died. For nearly 60 years, he and his son Ammon turned the people toward idolatry and wickedness. And the people repudiated the law of God and forgot that it even existed. The law of God was completely forgotten in 60 years. Manasseh, in 2 Kings 21.16, I'll read this for you. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another killing people who didn't deserve to die. Manasseh sacrificed his own son to Moloch in the valley of Hinnon near Jerusalem and Manasseh was one of the ones who brought in this child sacrifice. He also made his son pass through the fire practicing soothsaying, used witchcraft and this is uh, verse 6 of chapter 21 and consulted spiritists, mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now Hezekiah had resisted the Assyrians, but Manasseh abandoned that resistance and declared himself a loyal vassal of Assyria. Just declared. Just said, this is where we're going to go. Now 2 Chronicles 33, 10-13 tells us that at one point the Assyrians took Manasseh captive to Babylon with hooks and bronze fetters. Manasseh prayed to God, was released, and returned a changed man. He tried to get rid of the idols, but the damage had already been done. As one commentator noted, Manasseh was able to get rid of the idols everywhere except in the heart of his own son, Ammon. And then Ammon comes to the throne. Ammon was Manasseh's son, Hezekiah's grandson, and reigned for two years. He ignored his father's repentance and brought back all the idols and all of the evil policies of his father. Ammon was assassinated by the palace conspirators for reasons unknown, leaving the throne to eight-year-old Josiah. Josiah was the son of Ammon and the king of Judah from 640 to 609 B.C. What the Word of God does not tell you and that probably it happened here is that when Manasseh came back after repentance and Ammon would not hear of the repentance of his father, he apparently went on to Josiah and in a grandfatherly way began to talk with him about the things of God. And he must have gotten through because Josiah became the great reformer and you know he did not get that from his father. So Josiah was one one of many, how many people do you know who had a better relationship with their grandfather than their father? And this is probably what happened with Josiah. He saw something kinder in Manasseh during his latter years after this repentance. Now he was eight years old when his, when his father was killed and he became king in his place. Ezekiel grew up during the reforms of Josiah. And a copy of the law was discovered by Hilkiah during Josiah's renovations of the temple. Josiah read it and was determined to obey it fully. He even dug up the bones of the idolatrous priests and burned them on their altars. Remember, he was the one who was going to take care of the uh, 
the altar in Bethel that we read about on Sunday. The people, however, were corrupt and did not genuinely repent. Jeremiah 3 and verse 10, And yet for all his or her treachery, sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Now the Mosaic law that they had just uh, rediscovered said that the people would be taken captive and dispersed if they obeyed, disobeyed the covenant. Luke, uh, Leviticus 26 as an example of that. Now after this we have uh, Assyria come into play again. Assyria was the dominant power in the Near East for about 250 years. While Josiah reigned, however, Assyria was too busy with its own problems to pay him any attention. Now this was certainly uh, something I see as sent by God. This was a heathen nation. They had their own problems. And Josiah decided to, uh, as, as he was doing these reforms, he did not have to deal with a nation such as Assyria knocking on the door trying to take them over. Now there was a new power struggle that was beginning at this time when the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, uh, died in 626 B.C. The empire erupted into chaos. The Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nabopolassar came into existence that same year. And Jeremiah began his ministry a year earlier. So a whole lot of things happened right around then. Then there was the Scythians. They traveled in hordes, leaving desolation in their wake. They appeared in the Near East in the 7th century from the region north of the Black Sea. These are people who came through and just destroyed everything that was in front of them. The Medes and the Persians. The Medes migrated from what is now southern Russia. About 1000 BC, they settled in the Iranian plateau. The Persians also came from that area, but settled further south. Egypt, Pharaoh Necho reigned from 609 to 594 BC, and they had been a long and great power, but they were now in decline. So Assyria is battling, trying to keep their power. Babylon has come suddenly on the scene, and Egypt is on their way down. So with Babylon, Nabopolassar, uh, was king from 626 to 605 B.C. His son Nebuchadnezzar reigned from 605 until 562, a lot longer. Nebopolassar defeated Assyria in battle in 612 B.C. It was at that, this time that Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, fell. It fell to a coalition of, of uh, nations, including the Medes and the Babylonians. So they kind of ganged up on the Assyrians and knocked them out. Uh, they destroyed the Assyrian capital. Two centuries later, a Greek army passing that way had to ask what the large mound of earth was. It was all that was left of Nineveh. Two hundred or you know, two centuries later, they did not know what the mound was. That's how forgotten Nineveh had become. And it was a great city. Now the remnant of the Assyrian army retreated to Haran. We had the Battle of Megiddo. Megiddo. Uh, Necho of Egypt marched to the aid of the Assyrians in 609 BC. It was not because the Egyptians liked the Assyrians, but it li did. It liked the growing Babylonian power even less. So Josiah tried to stop Necho at Megiddo and was killed in battle. You remember the the story with Josiah there. He just he shouldn't have gone. Uh, Necho even said, "I'm on a mission from God." I don't know if he necessarily was, but he thought he was. So Necho continued on to Haran to help the Assyrians, but the delay caused by Josiah proved fatal to Necho's plans, and Babylon defeated them both at the Battle of Megiddo. Now, from the most ancient times to the time of Napoleon, Megiddo was one of the great battlegrounds of the world. 
and God has chosen this famous battlefield to depict the final destruction of Antichrist in the book of Revelation, it is now called the Battle of Armageddon. But it will be in the same battlefield. It is a massive plane and just ideal for battle. And it will once again see that. Uh, then we had Jehoaz. Jehoaz was Josiah's second son. He became king of Judah in 609 B.C. When a king dies, Josiah died in battle, who is supposed to become king? The oldest son. And apparently the people saw something the older son they didn't like, and so they made the second son king. Now the party in Judah that wanted political independence was able to pass by Jehoiakim and instead put his younger brother Jehoaz on the throne. After Necho was defeated by Babylon, he returned to Egypt and began to consolidate his power in Palestine and Syria. He invited Jehoaz to his headquarters in Riblah, deposed him and carried him off to Egypt, where he died after having been king for only three months. It wasn't there very long. In his place, Necho placed Jehoiakim as the vassal king in Judah, the oldest son. Now he was Josiah's eldest son and was king from Judah from 609 B.C. until 597 B.C. So that's yeah, a decent amount of time. He wasn't uh, more than, it was certainly more than three months. He was known to be pro-Egyptian, which is probably why Necho put him in charge. He wanted somebody there who was pro-Egypt and not somebody who was pro-Babylonian because that was the other, the other power now. Assyria is gone. The people of Judah probably knew what they were doing when they passed over Jehoiakim and put his younger brother on the throne. The temple treasures had been removed and heavy tribute was being paid to Egypt, yet Jehoiakim built for himself a luxurious royal house with forced labor to make himself appear a successful ruler. That's not the kind of people you want in charge. In uh, Jeremiah 22, 13-19, there's the uh, some words against him, verse 15 in particular. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? <laughs> Trying to qualify himself by the great house that he has, I guess. Now, Jehoiakim was the king who cut and burned up the prophecies of Jeremiah. I remember, remember that story in chapter 36. Jeremiah had written out this, this prophecy from God, and he would read it, and as he read it, as the words were read, he cut off that part of it, and he burned it. He let it all be read, but as it was being read, he cut it off and then he would throw it into the fire. That's what he thought of it. He's also the king mentioned in the opening verses of Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah has some warnings about him. The lifetime of, uh, lifetime of Jeremiah spanned the time from Josiah to the Babylonian exile. While Isaiah assured his generation that Assyria would not enter Jerusalem, Jeremiah warned that destruction from Babylon was imminent. So Isaiah stuck his neck out and said, Assyria will not come here. And though they had uh, uh, come in and they had done some things under Hezekiah, they never did take over the, the place. And uh, his prophecies were true. Well, Jeremiah warned them to submit to the Babylonians and not to follow the enticements of Egypt. Don't go after Egypt. Submit to the Babylonians. But they didn't listen. The writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel coverage at, uh, converge at many points, yet neither verbally acknowledges the work of the other. Kind of interesting. Then we had the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar led the armies of his father Nabopolassar and attacked the combined Assyrian and Egyptian forces at Carchemish on the Euphrates River. 
This is one of the most important battles in history. Babylon won overwhelmingly. Assyria passed away forever. Egypt later aspired to power, but never again rose to international significance. So they eventually had some power to help protect themselves, but nothing that would force their will upon the world. The first deportation happened here. Babylon continued southward after their conquest of, at Carchemish and invaded Judah. They deported a group of young nobles, including Daniel and his friends. Jehoiakim is still the king, but instead of being a vassal to Egypt, he is now a reluctant vassal of Babylon. Remember, he's on the side of Egypt. And after three years of unwilling submission to Babylon, he revolted against Babylon in favor of Egypt. In doing so, he ignored the warnings of Jeremiah. But he had other prophets that he listened to. These were false prophets, rose up against Jeremiah. I like their word better, so he went their way. Nebuchadnezzar retaliated against Judah in December 598 B.C. Jehoiakim died during the month uh, that Babylon attacked, apparently assassinated. Jeremiah tells us that he received the burial of a donkey in Jeremiah 22 and verse 19. That's all they thought of him. They buried him like he would a donkey. Jehoiachin was 18 when his father died. He became king. He surrendered the city of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar three months after he became king. And here we have the second deportation. After the surrender in 597 B.C., Jehoiachin, his mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men were deported. Ezekiel was also deported at this time. So he went in the second deportation, Daniel in the first. His first message was in 592 B.C., five years after the second deportation. So he is in captivity for five years before he has the first word. Zedekiah, Josiah's youngest son, or Jehoiachin's uncle, uh, became king next. Nebuchadnezzar established him as a regent vassal over Judah, a position he held from 597 until 586 B.C. And though in exile, Jehoiachin appears to have remained the recognized king of Judah. Because remember how many times Ezekiel is dating his prophecies according to the exile of Jehoiachin. Uh, it also is shown by other administrative documents that have been found in excavations at Babylon. Also Ezekiel, like we said, he, he dates everything by Jehoiachin's captivity. Now Jehoiachin was well treated in Babylon. Clay tablets record the quality, a quantity of oil that was delivered monthly. And it lists his name in there, or at least the name that it, it seems to point to him. At one point, he had a position that was above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. That's 2 Kings 25 and 28. Zedekiah, on the other hand, was a miserable and pitiful, pitiful uh, figure. He had uh, Jeremiah in prison, yet secretly sent for him and asked for him for advice. You remember, remember that story in Jeremiah 37. It was during Zedekiah's regency that Ezekiel from Babylon denounced the moral depravity of Judah and said that the glory of God would leave the temple. This is who is king when those particular prophecies came from the mouth of Ezekiel. We have the second revolt. This is all going on in the history leading up to the final fall of Jerusalem. False prophets told Zedekiah that Nebuchadnezzar's power would soon be broken. They also said that the exile would soon triumphantly return. Jeremiah 28, 1-4 talks about Hananiah. You may remember some of the things that he did. He had the, uh, the horns. You know, he got uh, props for his, uh, his prophecies. Also, the pharaohs that ruled after Necho in Egypt appeared to have, been, have renewed strength. All of this prompted Zedekiah to listen to the pro-Egyptian party and seek aid from the new Egyptian king, Hophra. In 589, the final rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar had begun. And the patience of Nebuchadnezzar was exhausted. Babylon responded immediately and marched toward Jerusalem. 
They laid siege to Jerusalem in 588 B.C. Description of the siege speaks of pestilence, famine, and cannibalism. And after 18 months, and despite some Egyptian help, the city was razed to the ground. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C., and Zedekiah was captured trying to flee. He was blinded after witnessing the execution of his sons, and he was led off to Babylon, where he died. Then we have the third deportation. Many of the Jews were murdered by the Babylonians and others were deported to Babylonia. This, of course, prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but Judah had fallen. Judah, after the third deportation, the Edomites, the Edomites watched with approval as the city was destroyed. And you remember the, some of the things that uh, were said about the Edomites when Ezekiel had his prophecy against Edom. If you uh, read Obadiah, you can see the reaction of the Edomites there. And Habakkuk also prophesied at this time, describing the Babylonians as the rod of God's wrath. Jeremiah was treated very well by the Nebuchadnezzar and offered complete freedom. When they came in, they knew that Jeremiah had been saying, you should be siding with Babylon. Don't be rebellious. They knew all that. And they said, look, we know this has nothing to do with you. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? They gave him total freedom. He decided to stay in Judah with the governor. Gedaliah, the Nebuchadnezzar had appointed. His goal was to stay there and continue to give the word of God to the people who remained. Ishmael, he was a royal relative, and he staged a revolt and killed Gedaliah. Many of the remaining Jews wanted to flee to Egypt. Jeremiah told him that Babylon would not give them any more trouble, but, the, but Egypt was too much of a draw, and they all went, even though he said that Egypt would soon fall. So they rejected the prophecy, and they forced him and Baruch to accompany them to Egypt. Jeremiah delivers his final prophecy at Tophanes in Egypt. In 586, the word comes to Ezekiel that the city is smitten. And from the state of undue optimism dealt by the first third of Ezekiel, the Jews switched the feelings of despair dealt with by the last third of the book. That's the part of the restoration. Looking uh, quickly at some of these uh, early chapters, in chapter 1 we had the vision of the four living creatures. That is probably the most well-known chapter of the book of Ezekiel, and to me the least impactful, or one of the least impactful. I think it was a great chapter. There's uh, some wonderful things that happened to it, but boy, some of those other chapters just hold such a punch. In chapter 2 we have the call of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told very firmly to speak the words of God to rebellious people who will not listen or heed the words spoken. God told them, they're not going to listen to you. But I need you to speak to him anyway. He is given a very stern warning of what would happen if he doesn't speak these words. In the same way, we have to make sure that the words we speak are the words of God and that we speak them. Speaking words not from God as if they were carries a penalty. And God speaks about that here. In verse 5 of the chapter, he says, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's what God wanted. I want them to know that a prophet has been here. They may not listen to you, but when they get it all done, they're going to know this was a prophet. This is a man who spoke the words of God. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. In chapter 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. What words we take in, we speak. He was to take in the words of God. 
and then he was to speak them. Jesus took in the Father's words that he would speak only those. You know his words that he said a few times? Just a few times that are recorded anyway. I only say what I hear my Father say and only do what I see my Father do. Now Ezekiel heard the words of those around him. He heard the false words. He heard the rebellious uh, uh, words that they would speak. But he heard through but he heard all this through the light that God had given him. God had given him light about all this, and so when he heard it, he did not hear it and was clouded by it. He, was, he saw clearly, well, this is, uh, this is where they're getting that from. This is where it comes from. He saw it very clearly that way. This is just as in the case today. Many who claim to be believers hear the words of today, but through the light of the world, not through God's word. You're going to hear, no matter what you do, you're going to hear the words that the world speaks you must hear it through the light of the Word of God and not through the light of the world. If we hear it through the light of the world, we will be like those in opposition to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 3.8, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads like adamant stone, harder than flint. I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Basically, God was telling him he made his head hard. I'm giving you a hard head, is what he's saying. Sometimes it's good to be headstrong for God. And God says to him, you're going to need to be headstrong because they are going to try and pull you off the path I'm putting you on. And you are not to listen to them. In chapter 3, verse 10, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears and go get the, to, to the captives, to the children of your people and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So here's the process of speaking his words first off. And it seems to be out of order, but this is how God says, receive it into your heart, hear it with your ears. Most of us would think, hear it with your ears and receive it in your heart. But that's not how God said it. He said, receive it into your heart, hear it with your ears, and then go and speak it. It would seem that if your heart isn't right, your ears cannot hear what they're supposed to. Your ears can hear your ears can hear whatever they want to. And this is what happened with some of those false prophets that were there. Their hearts were not right, and their ears were able to hear what they wanted to. In Ezekiel three, verse sixteen, now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word. He is made to be a watchman. He is made to be one who would stand watch. And uh, later on in chapter 33, he's going to define that even more. And he has given many demonstrative prophetic words. And we're not able to go through them all here tonight. But uh, the first one, this is the one with the ropes, the muteness, and the speaking, or the, the uh, speaking the words of God. In Ezekiel 3:25, And you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear and he who refuses, let him refuse for they are a rebellious house. So he apparently was given muteness for this time and he was not able to speak at all except when God would speak a word to him and then he could speak. Now, they will put ropes on you. 
It could be the people as they did with Jeremiah, perhaps those with God, so that Ezekiel cannot reprove them of what he sees coming from a heart of love for them, but wait for the word of God to be spoken as to what to say. Whatever the reason is, someone is tying him up, someone is putting ropes on, whether they did it for a good purpose or whether they did it for a bad purpose, he was going to be tied up. But when I speak with you, when God speaks with you, I will open your mouth. We made this note about Ezekiel. No prophet seems to have his life taken over by the call as much as Ezekiel. Many want a greater call but are not willing to give up the comfort required. And Ezekiel gave up a lot of comfort to be God's man to speak these things. You may not like all the details of your call, but then again, God may not either. But they're necessary for what you're supposed to do. God has to make the calling fit the people he looks to reach, so we must adopt to the calling. The second one was the clay tablet and the siege of Jerusalem. We had a model to demonstrate, and this is the one where he was laying on his side for 390 days on the left side, which would likely have him facing north, Ephraim, and Israel. The Septuagint has this as 190 years and some as 150. A few others have 390. Our, our text puts in there 390. The um, 40 days on the right side, this would have been facing south of Jerusalem. So this could be talking about the uh, judgment that would come on the northern tribe, which had already occurred, and the one on the, on the uh, southern tribe. Another possibility for this is that it's, this is a prophecy about the two falls of Jerusalem. The first one being in 584 B.C. and the second one in 70 A.D. after a shorter period of grace, 40 years. Now we all know that Jesus, was uh, he lived on this earth for 33 and a half years. He was not born though in 0 B.C. or 0 A.D. He was born in about 3 B.C. which would have put his death somewhere around the time of 30 A.D. which would have meant 40 years after the death of Christ came the fall of Jerusalem. And the second time on the side was 40, was the number 40. That's why I think one reason why they are brought to the thing of talking about the two falls. It would make more sense to be talking about the two falls of Jerusalem since what he is doing is a prophecy since the northern tribe has already fallen. During this, he had, uh, it was regulated what kind of food he could have and how much water he could have. And he uh, accepted all the food Restrictions. I'll eat this, just this. But then when God says you have to cook it over dung, he says, no, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I'm a priest here. Uh, we're not supposed to be doing stuff like that. And so God says, all right, well, look, for you, you, you don't have to use human dung. You can use cow dung. All right, well, as long as, long as we can do that, then we'll be okay. And so uh, he didn't give any, any problem with anything else except that one part. He was supposed to shave his head and divide his hair into three parts. The first, uh, first third would be those who would die in the city. Those who in Jerusalem who would be murdered in the city. The second is those who would die defending or fleeing the city. So two-thirds were going to die. The third third are those who are scattered or taken captive. There was a small number that were held into his garment. And this was a small number probably of those that would be, be staying back behind and staying into the into the city. God was saying through Ezekiel that he was against the nation. Most false prophets are saying that he is for them. 
Israel was supposed to be an example to the world of how God blessed his children. Instead, they became an example of how God will judge his children. Chapter 6, we saw that instead of prophesying to the people, the word of God says, say to the mountains. And so the message contains the transition from the proclamation against the sins of the nation in general, which is uh, 4 and 5, to one against the mountains and the high places and the detestable places. And we spent a good bit of time in this one going over the high places, the significance of those high places, um, and why God was against them, some of their history, some of the, uh, that these were some of the great high places in the world that was there in the in Israel because of the people that were in the land before. In chapter 7, is one I particularly enjoyed. This was the one of the safe spaces. This was going to be an end to the land, an end to mercy, and an end to hearing from God. The picture from Ezekiel was Jerusalem is going to fall, so Jerusalem is unsafe. Judah is going to fall, so Judah is unsafe. The mountains are unsafe. Fleeing Judah, Judah and Jerusalem is unsafe. Your safe place is to stay in exile and not return to land. Repent and serve God. But Israel desired to be in the land that God gave them and blessed them with and will forsake the safe place given to them for the place they spiritually desired. Same way the enemy pulls people after a love of the things of God which are not God's things at all to lure them into unsafe places where they can be plundered. This is what he does to us now. God may say, stay out of these places, stay out of these things, don't get involved in this. And what happens with to Christian people? Get involved in those things. We do those things and we get taken out of the safe places into the unsafe places and this is exactly what the enemy wants. And just as God said, these are the safe places here, stay there. We have safe places that God declares to us and we constantly want to leave the safe places to go to the places where destruction is going to come. The people in exile are in a safer place according to the prophetic word given by God through Ezekiel. But they're not satisfied being in a safe place. They want to go back to Jerusalem. They want to go back to Judea. They want to go back to where God has said it is not safe. Those people there, most of them are going to die. So the enemy causes them to find fault in Ezekiel so that his words are called into question. The Spirit of Christ contends with the content of the message to expose the inward character of the messenger. The spirit of Antichrist contends with the character of the messenger to call into question the message. Well, we saw don't don't murmur or complain against those set to protect you. This is what they did. They murmured and complained about Jeremiah. They murmured and complained about Ezekiel. Do what God called you to do. Stay busy. Stay focused. Continually find satisfaction in what you do. Contentment and peace will be yours and with it the growing wisdom of God. The enemy does not want you to be satisfied with where God has you, with what God has you doing. He wants you to be looking at something else and to pull you out from the safe places into the unsafe places. In chapter 8, we had uh, titled that one, Do Not Mix. We know there are many things we're not supposed to be mixed together. There are some things you just don't put together. And this here in the 8th chapter of Ezekiel we saw, God gave them a word about not mixing things and those things were pagan the pagan things mixing with godly things. But Israel didn't least listen and they reaped the results. It's not the only time that it has happened. 
Now the time he would have this toward the end of the days, laying of his son on his side. When this is going on, more than likely he's still laying on his side. He can speak when uh, God gives him a word. But he is taken to Jerusalem and he sees the mixing of pagan worship in the temple area. Somehow, the presence of God is still there. Just because God is present with us doesn't mean we have allowed the world, we have not allowed the world to mix into our beliefs, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Too many times people want to say, well, God is present with me. Yes, that does not mean that you haven't mixed in the world with you. In this chapter, God was still in the temple, even though all this idolatry was being mixed into the temple place. There was the image of jealousy that was set up. There was the worship of animals. There was the worship of, of nature. There was tamaz. There was the sun worship. I made a note that only two times in the history of the world have God's people been in the majority on this earth. Two times in this world have God's people been the majority on this earth. At creation and after the flood. Today, churches are twisting the gospel, watering it down, or crediting it out altogether. Some denominations also mix Christianity with the same false religions that we see in Ezekiel. And just give you some examples for that. Sun worship. How many Christians read their horoscopes every day? Animal worship. There's more protection given to turtle eggs than babies in the womb. Illegal to kill an unborn eagle, but not an unborn human. That is animal worship. Worship of nature, that was Tamaz. How many churches mix Christianity with New Age practices or put nature on a pedestal over people? They call for the sacrifices and living for the benefit of nature. They will not give themselves. They call for energy changes with no data to back up the claims and disregard the cost of the people. California is now seeing a whole lot of that. How many have heard about the rolling brownouts that are going on? California because they shut down so many of the natural natural gas. Natural gas is one of the cleanest burning fuels that there is. They shut down so many of the power plants that were natural gas, but the ones they created with the windmills and the solar cannot keep up. So they've actually, uh, uh, they're not producing as much energy as they once did, so they don't have enough energy to supply all the people for the for what they have. Now, if you drop the power out of an entire region, what's going to occur in that region? You're going to have some crime going on there because if people know there's no power, a whole lot of things that are in place to stop them from crime is now over. And we can just go in there and, and do some of the things. Plus, a whole lot more would, would be going on. There's a lot of worship of nature out in California. They worship nature so much they won't maintain the forest. And now they're trying to blame all the forest fires on global warming which of course is ridiculous, but that's what they blame it on. The reason for it is they won't take care of the forest. I've, uh, I've seen, um, I just saw recently a picture of uh, somebody who shows a 17-year-old tree, and the one tree is about this big, 17 years. The other tree is this big, 17 years. He said the difference between it is that the bigger one is in a managed forest. The smaller one is in an unmanaged forest, like California has. You see, they can't grow the way they're supposed to grow. 17 years, that's all the tree that you got. In a managed forest where they go through and they, they cut out the, the trees that are either dead or about to die. 
They cut them out. They plant new ones. That gives the room for the other ones to, to go. California just lets them fall and die. That's all energy waiting. A lightning strikes, sets it on fire, and the fire just burns through. It kills people. It destroys people. It destroys their, their livelihood. It, destroy, it can destroy cities. The fires can get that out of control. They aren't doing the things that other states do all along the East Coast. And that's why the fires just burn along those, those coasts because they won't manage the forest. The Sierra Club has uh, too much say out there. The forest, the animals would be doing far better if they would go through and they would manage the forest. But they're trying to get people to think, well, they manage the forest, they're going to come in here and cut out all the trees. They don't cut out all the trees. They cut out the ones that need to be cut out to keep the, the uh, fires from going on. Once you have that big, those big forest fires, how many animals do you think are being affected? But that's the worship of nature. They call for sacrifices and living for the benefit of nature. Child sacrifices. How many of the denominations that we have today have changed their view on abortion? Back in the 50s, there's not a, I don't think you can find a single church that would have agreed to it. Now how many churches don't stand for, for that? And we saw constantly through the Old Testament, you see what God thinks about people killing babies. God is real clear about that. Well, people are standing in the office of a priest with no call from God and are mere shepherds for hire. They're out for personal gain. We had that going on in the Old Testament. We had that going on in the days of Jesus. We have that going on now. They will leave the Word of God and His principles because their stated objective is not their goal. They may say, this is what we want to do, but that is not. they're out for personal gain. And they're going to say whatever they need to do to, to do it. Chapters 9 and 10... We have finally the day that God left. Chapter 8 announced that there was going to be a judgment and here it is carried out. And when you look at all the ungodliness and injustice in the world, what do you feel? Did you know that what you feel when you look at all the injustice in the world tells you some things about how you've accepted the heart of God? In Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 5, to the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. I don't know if you remember this one or not, but this is something we gave you before. Mercy is merely pity if it doesn't have an end point of justice. In verse 8, same chapter, so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and I cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. number of things out of these uh, verses and this is uh, I think pretty much the, the end of it. And we went out and got another translation to help us out because verse 9 is a little difficult to read. Where it says, Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. The New Century Version puts it this way. Then he said to me, The sin of the people of Israel and Judah is very great. The land is filled with people who murder, and the city is full of people who are not fair. The people say, The Lord has left the land, and the Lord does not see. 
Just because people declare something about God, it doesn't mean that it is true or founded in any truth. These people said things about God, but it was not founded in truth. There are many people today who will say things about God. It is not founded in truth. And if you know your God, if you know your word, you can say, that is not God. You may call on God, you may try and quote some scriptures and throw some things out there and say this is what God said, that is not God. And here in this particular situation, he used the killing that was going on as an example. Get to that in just a minute. He uses the word, the term fair here. How often today do people have one view of justice? If you are aligned with my party, politics, sexual orientation, race, and so forth, as long as I agree with those things of you, then I see justice for you in a different way than I do otherwise. God, that, and to them, that's fair. God is not swayed by these things. He's not swayed by party, politics, sexual orientation, race, and so, so forth. To God, justice is justice. Now, look at this. I want you to see this in Scripture. Pointed it out to you before. Maybe something that you may have forgotten. But uh, there's so much lesson we can learn from this. The heart that Ezekiel has embraced here in this chapter is not the heart of God. As great of a man as Ezekiel is for the things of God, he has not picked up on the heart of God. And look at what he says. So it was, verse 8, that while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? He saw what God was doing and saw it as wrong and was sad. He did not have the heart of God. Christians, even someone as, as, as in good standing as Ezekiel, could see God doing what God wanted to do to execute judgment because mercy had not been received he didn't have the heart of God folks it's so easy for us to slip from the area of mercy to the area of pity and God doesn't want us to be in the area of pity mercy has an end result of judgment and we have to understand that because we can embrace this same thing True justice does not despise mercy, nor does true mercy despise judgment. The one who is faithful in administering mercy is not reluctant when he is asked to administer chastisement. He was a little bit here. Now again, he's growing. We're still early in the chapter, or early in the book, and he's still growing on some things. And, and we, we didn't get to one of my favorite chapters of growth. I didn't get to to get that far here it's just too much for us to take on as it is this is quite a bit for us to do but mercy must not despise the demands of justice or else it will cease to be mercy in Isaiah 6 6 it shows us that the coals of fire are not always punitive but they are always purifying Isaiah was not affected by the coals in a punitive way but he was purified by them there is nothing good about false religions. They are utterly detestable to God. And they should be to us as well. Toleration may have become the greatest virtue of our own modern age, but it is not one of God's attributes. He does not tolerate sin, and neither should we. Don't leave the mercy of God for mere human pity. 
Well, that's enough of a review for one night. I think you can see why we didn't go any further. It took a while just to get through this, this part. But we're really just focusing on the first half of the book for the review. So we might be able to get through the rest of it in the, the next part, especially since a lot tonight we're showing you the history. I want you to see that history again. This is all that history that built, built up to what is going on here in this book of Ezekiel. God didn't just dump this judgment on them. You have to see the history, the hundred years that went on before, and the, the things that Israel had walked in and what they had left, and how these, these things had gotten hold. The, the political battle that was going on in Israel is sometimes blind to us just reading the Word of God. But if we understand that it was going on, we can see it in the Word. And this, for them, it was a battle between Egypt and Assyria and then between Egypt and Babylon. And which side are we going to go with? And prophets arose, and some said, no, you need to be on the side of Egypt, and some arose and said, no, you need to be on the side of Babylon. And the people decided to choose which ones. But just as in their day, if we know the tactics of the enemy, I can spot him wherever he shows up. All I need to do is see him do certain things because God does not enlist the tactics that Satan does. And it's very easy to pinpoint what those things are. So if we stay with that, we won't be like the children of Israel who were so perplexed as to which side they should go with that they finally just gave up in listening to the Word of God at all. Yeah, whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to be involved in this anymore. Well, Father, we thank you for the example of all the things that went on in Israel around the time of Ezekiel. It's not the only time in history that it's happened. It's happened before the days of Ezekiel. It's happened after the days of Ezekiel, and it's happening in our day. There will be those who will rise up and say God is on this side, and there will be those who rise up and say God is on that side. But all we need to do is to recognize the tactics of the enemy. And that a side that employs those tactics, we know not to follow. I thank you for how clear your word has depicted all these things for us. That you have given us the ability to see, even though we don't have the benefit of hindsight. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.